You're listening to the PGA of Canada Professional Development Podcast, helping you make progress as a teacher, coach, and business owner. Hey, I'm Cordy Walker and your host for today. And we're going to look at a concept that is essential for really effective learning environments. And the goal for today is to help you come away with a few very practical ideas on how you make your lesson just a little bit more effective, meaning that that student takes what they've learned during the lesson and is able to apply that and grow in their skill. And really our guest today, Dr. Mark Guadagnoli, is one of the leading experts in this field of motor learning and golf research. He actually developed the concept and the research behind it that we're talking about today. That is Challenge Point. It's really essential for effective learning environments. And he's going to break it down. We're going to understand the term, understand exactly what it means, give some examples of it and how it all works, and then give you some really actionable and practical ideas to implement it into what you do on a day-to-day basis. All right, let's get to it. So we're here with Dr. Mark Guadagnoli, uh, and he's one of these researchers that I think has had a big impact on the way that I view learning and the way that I view teaching and coaching. And that's because he's behind one of these concepts that I think is just foundational to getting golfers better, and it's called Challenge Point. So uh, I wanted to sit down and talk with him about it, and so we could get a better understanding of, of how it can impact teaching and coaching. But Mark, how's it going? Fantastic. Cordy, always happy to talk with you. For sure. So, I, you know, if people haven't heard of Challenge Point, could you maybe just give us the 30,000 foot overview of, of what it is? Sure. We've talked about this before, but it, was a, it originated from a paper that Tim Lee and I uh, published in 2004. And then it sort of took on its life, a uh, life of its own, because essentially what it says is that if we are challenged at a certain level, like sort of this sweet spot, this Goldilocks level, we tend to have short-term struggles, but long-term gains. And that concept has been sort of batted around a bit for a long time. One of the people you've had on the show as well, Bob Bjork, mentioned something called desirable difficulties. And, and he brought up this idea that if we have a certain level of difficulty while we're training, then that's desirable for long-term learning. I think the part of the uniqueness to Challenge Point is it actually specifically models this out and says, you know, here's how you should be practicing for optimized learning. And it also says, here's how you should progress through your practice. And I think that last piece in particular is interesting because what it really does is it scales it to any individual of any skill set, be a beginner or a highly experienced, or in, you know, in our case, a PGA professional, and even within the ranks of professional, how you should set up practice to optimize your learning. And it turns out there are two other interesting aspects to this. One is if you set up practice this way, not only do you optimize your learning so that your skills get better, but it also increases your performance under pressure. So there's a performance equation that I think you and I actually talked about last time that essentially says performance equals ability minus interference. And most people, when they go out to practice, all they're practicing on is their ability. And yet when they go to play, it's the interference that typically decreases 
their satisfaction increases their score in golf and so forth, makes them not perform as well. So the challenge point practice method actually increases ability, decreases interference, and therefore produces better performance. So that's part one. And then part two is that when I was presenting this work several years ago with a friend, uh, Dan Schachter at Harvard, one of his students pointed out that there's a neurochemical and biological impetus for this idea of challenge point that we know from a all the way down to the cellular level that if we practice at a certain level, it's actually going to create a flood of chemicals that are associated with optimized learning. So there are you know multiple levels at which you can you know really sort of take this apart, and and I think for those reasons it's been used in surgery and golf and academics and so forth. You know at this point I'm at a uh, a medical school in Las Vegas, and we use it with our students and faculty and and so forth. So again, it's taken on a life of its own, which has been really cool. Amazing. Amazing. You know, so I want to talk to maybe a stereotype of, you know, what a head pro might think. And hopefully we don't offend anybody here, but here's the stereotype that I have in my head, right? Is so, you know, someone shows up to a lesson and their goal is to have the student hit, let's just say hitting the ball better by the time they leave that lesson and they want to make the student feel comfortable. They want them to be relaxed and they're going to try to make a few changes so that they're better at the end of that half hour, hour session. Mm-hmm. How does that stereotype or how does that typical, you know, thing that might play out all across with PGA of Canada members, how does they implement some of these ideas of challenge point into that kind of common framework? Well, you know, it's, I think it's interesting because that is the stereotype, right? Trying to help people to immediately hit better shots. And, and logically, that makes really good sense because what happens from the student's perspective and the instructor's perspective is they see somebody improving. The problem is that that oftentimes is a short-term improvement. And, and then it leads to frustration. It leads to people moving away from the game instead of moving deeper into the game. I'll tell you an analogy that strikes me with this. If you ever had a personal trainer, one of the things that happens is the personal trainer will tell you what exercises to do. They'll change the weights for you. They'll do all these things, which is, seems great. But then if you go to the gym yourself, you have no idea what to do. And I think inadvertently, some golf pros do that as well. They think the more often that we give feedback, it produces better performance, and therefore, it's producing better learning. But in fact, what we know is that if you don't have some degree of struggle during practice, where you do some, you know, some self-regulation, some self-feedback, then you tend to inflate your uh, stroke inflate your abilities while you're in practice and that tends to deflate your performance actually on the golf course and so in the ideal situation you could go down a whole series of things but let's take feedback just as one simple example if i were a golf pro uh, you know teaching under the challenge point method and i had somebody who had a decent idea of what they were doing as far as this the skill was concerned I would not give them feedback very frequently. In fact, I'd give them feedback infrequently or even ask the performer, what do you think happened on that shot? And that's going to cause a slower process. It's going to cause the more struggle on the 
the part of the learner. But it's exactly that struggle that's going to lead to long-term performance. You know, again, to use the analogy of the, the weight training situation with the personal trainer, if the person is struggling in the gym, you know, within reason, if the person is struggling within the gym, they're getting stronger, even though it may not look great, but they're getting stronger. And it's the same thing on the practice tee as well. Gotcha. So in the example, you know, you mentioned a decent player and I think a a lot of folks might be saying like, wow, you know, like that elderly gentleman that loves playing golf, but he is just awful, has enough challenge, (laughs) you know, getting out on the golf course Mm -hmm. and like playing, like it's hard enough. Mm -hmm. What about that person, right? Like they're not good, but they love the game and they obviously want to get better, but (laughs) there's a lot of challenge, right? Yeah. So actually this is a great example of where challenge point comes in because challenge point scales to the individual. So if you have somebody that for whatever reason, either their physical ability, their lack of knowledge of the game, et cetera, puts them in a category of, of a high handicapper, then there are several things to keep in mind. More frequent feedback because the ability to process information specifically in regard to golf isn't as good. Um, fewer points in each feedback piece that you give and much fewer changes. And the feedback that you give isn't very global. It's, it's, for example, you know, you're turning too far, which in truth probably doesn't happen, but you know, the, you get the idea that the person's trying to swing three quarters and now there's, they stay within themselves on the swing. And so the feedback then becomes something really super global, like, okay, try to swing three quarters. That was three quarters, or that was a full swing, or you know, that kind of feedback frequently, and then the person can kind of get what's happening. If you give them too much feedback, either in quality or quantity, it's going to overwhelm the system. If you give them too much technical information, it's going to overwhelm the system. And to your point, if you, if you ask them to change clubs every shot, it's going to overwhelm the system of the person who's high handicapper. Now, you take somebody who's a PGA pro, you do want to change clubs on a, on a regular basis. You do want to challenge them with precise feedback. You do want to ask them for feedback rather than give them feedback. All of these things are challenging people at an appropriate level. And that's really what this all comes down to. What's the appropriate level of challenge for this individual to optimize their long-term learning? So changing up feedback is a great way to change that challenge level. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. gotcha. So with the lower handicap, challenging that player more with questions, maybe giving more uh, specific feedback, and then with a higher handicap to lower the challenge point, more general, simpler feedback? Right, that's exactly right. Okay. And then, you know, There's also a variety of other ways that you could increase or decrease the challenge for the individual. But you're right. I mean, feedback, I think, is one of the key things because most pros have a tendency to talk more than they should talk. And I'm not saying that in an offensive way. In some cases, the the student will wonder what's going on if the pro isn't talking to them right? So this all needs to be set up ahead of time. Here's how I'm going to be with you. Here's why I'm going to be this way. When you think I'm not paying attention because I'm not talking to you, I'm actually allowing you space to work this out on your own. Or 
if it's a you know a, a high handicapper, I'm going to talk to you on a pretty regular basis. Let me know if it feels a little bit overwhelming. Let me know if it feels like I'm giving you too much information too fast. And so I really think that the the relationship between the learner and the teacher is is more like a dance, you know, where they have to be in sync with each other, and that dance changes based on the expertise of the of the learner. Gotcha. So it, maybe a little more education, a little bit more of a conversation about how learning actually works would be beneficial for most people, you know, for most pros to be giving before before a lesson or before a session. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. You mentioned there that there's a second part of, of um, challenge point of, of when we are challenged that something happens in the brain. I don't know anything about that. So I'm curious to, to learn a bit more about what you mentioned earlier. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to me as well. And and again, you know, this was brought to my attention and then looking at it in some more detail, there's a whole series of studies and they were originally done with non-humans. So they were done with rats, for example. And what they would do is they would put these rats under some medium level of stress. And you can create stress a variety of ways, like shocking the animal of, you know, with a high shock, low shock, withholding food, a variety of things that that creates a stress response. And, you know, for animals, we think about the stress response as being a stress to something in the environment. For us, that stress is something that oftentimes is created internally. And it's where we talk about the interference piece of the performance, you know, ability minus interference equals performance. And so one of the really nice things about the challenge point training model is it creates stress during practice so that people are used to stress when they're in competition and they end up responding well because they've essentially practiced that, that internal stress that we create. But it turns out that there's this sweet spot where we should be stressed. So imagine if you're in a classroom situation or any kind of a training situation. If your stress level is too low, your brain is essentially saying, well, this can't be important or I would be more excited about it. And so it automatically dumps information. If your stress level is too high, it says, uh-oh, we're in a fight or flight mode and I don't really care about survival. And so it's going to dump information. It's in that sweet spot right in between. A friend of mine, Jamie Fitzgerald, talks about this as being the edge of stretch, the stretch zone. And it's that area where we optimize learning. And it turns out that there is something called long-term potentiation, which is essentially like the, the neurons talking to themselves and getting more and more comfortable talking to themselves. You know, this is, you and I have now spoken a few times, we, we start talking in a more comfortable way than we did initially because we're more familiar with each other. The neurons do the same thing. And when you are learning under this medium level of stress, the neurons are able to connect more easily. And the more the neurons connect, the more we're actually laying down these patterns of a good golf swing, for example. And so it's really fascinating that the whole biology of the system is designed for us to learn under this medium level of stress. 
So, you know, as a teacher or coach, kind of the role is to be the manager of, of stress or, or the manager of difficulty then is kind of kind of what I gather. And, and a lot of that would be trying to pick up on cues, I would assume, of cues of too much stress or not enough. Like what would be some of the signs or like what would you look for? Yeah, I mostly agree. Cordy, with what you're saying, um, and and here's the slight disagreement. Okay. I think I think optimally, the the teacher's job is to get the student to pick up on their own cues of stress, so that the student actually becomes the person who's guiding some of the the lesson. Where they're like, nope, this is too much. I need to just hit a few balls on my own. Or can you give me more information? Or can you create more challenge or less challenge for me and so forth? That becomes the ideal dance that the student and teacher do. But short of that, I agree with you that especially early on before the relationships developed, that it really is on the shoulders of the teacher. You know, that's their responsibility to be able to look at it. So here's a couple of things. On the practice tee, you'll see people change their grip pressure. So as grip pressure increases, it's because stress has increased. One of the things to me that is really telling is watching the eyes. You'll see the eyes dart quite a bit more, and they won't ball as the person is swinging. And the other part is their breathing becomes uh, labored and lots of deep breaths or rapid breaths if the person is beyond their optimal level of anxiety. The other side of it is true as well. If you see the student, like as if you're talking to them and the student is looking away, not paying attention and so forth, now you're probably under aroused or somehow the student is checked out in what's happening. So one of the easy ways to do a check on all of this is for the teacher to simply ask the student, what did you hear me just say? And how can you use this information and these kinds of things? So if the student says, you know, you told me to keep my head down and, and, you know, well, actually what I just said was, you know, keep your eye on the ball as you go through or yes, it's exactly what I just told you, right? So there's this interplay between the teacher and the student all along that engagement. And I think that piece especially initially, is exactly what the teaching pro, that's their responsibility to direct that. So if you've noticed that you've lost the attention, you've lost the engagement of a student, you would assume that the task or the game or whatever's going on is, is too easy then? Well, too easy or too hard, right? Because there, there is a point at which you give too much information to somebody and and then they check out because they know they can't process it. I took started taking guitar lessons at one point, and just as I would get to a point where I was at my edge of stretch, where I felt I was doing well, the teacher would get excited and give me a lot more information, and then I was done because it was just too much. And in an ideal situation, and I would I would ask the person, you know, I, I just need to work on this for a little bit. So if you could just, you know, uh, let me do this for about five minutes and then we can move on to something else. And because otherwise I would, it's not that I would just forget the new things that he was trying to tell me. I would also retroactively forget the things I was just learning because they hadn't been stable in my memory yet. And so... We really have 
the option of trying to learn everything at once or trying to learn small pieces of information across time. That latter is an investment mentality. We're going to invest in consistent learning across time, but what typically happens is I have an hour, I'm going to try and tell you everything I can tell you. And that doesn't work for either party. You know, just thinking of different tactics or specific methods would would taking a break or doing something totally different, like if you notice that a student has checked out and has lost that engagement is, you know, like doing a different task for a few minutes or you know, taking a break, are those effective ways to get a student back on track and, you know, as a, as a teacher also changing the learning environment to be more, more or less challenging? Yeah, it's, that's a, a absolutely great suggestion. And not only do I think it works, I've actually seen the data on it as well. So, uh, you know, we've done a study one time where we had people that did a few different tasks. One of them was, here's a bucket of balls, hit as many as you want, you've got 45 minutes. Another was, here's a bucket of balls, we're going to take breaks, you know, every so often. And then the third one was, bucket of balls, you're going to watch videos in your break, which we would, we refer to as an active break, videos of their golf swing. And so in all cases, they had 45 minutes, so the time remained the same. But what co-varied was the number of golf balls hit. So in the the here's your bucket, hit as many as you want, they hit way more golf balls than the other two groups. The other two groups had the same amount of time hitting and not hitting, and it was quite a bit less. It was it was they ended up hitting about half of the number of golf balls that the the first group did. Well, what we found was that just taking a break, which was the second group, improved learning considerably. It also, it turned out, improved performance during practice because the rhythm stayed better, uh, the tempo and rhythm stayed better. They actually got to think about what was going on um, and there was learning that took place. And then the ideal situation was watching uh, swing videos, their own swing videos, which allowed them to process the information at a next level. But the point is, in this case, in 45 minutes, fewer balls were better because they actually got time to process information. So from a practical perspective, everybody that I work with, there's nobody that is allowed to hit more than three balls in a row. And after they hit three balls, they step away, they clean their club, they you know, they rehearse their swing. They do something that's not hitting balls. And one of the things that happens initially is it's a little bit frustrating to the player because they want to just keep hitting balls. But very quickly, they start to learn that their tempo's better, that they're really engaged in what's happening. It is, there's some value to each golf ball that they're hitting. And these are exactly the kinds of things that are going to be beneficial to them when they actually go out and play. And so your suggestion of taking a break is fantastic. It's, it is one of, if I were going to give two simple rules to practice, this is even with a lesson, whether you're by yourself or with a lesson, number one is hit no more than three balls in a row and then take a break. And number two is watch the ball as far as you can watch it. So if it's a like a wedge, you can watch it all the way till it hits the ground. If it's a driver, you watch it until 
you know, it goes out of sight or, or maybe till it hits the ground. Those two things create enough lag between shots that it actually allows your brain to process the information, keeps your tempo right. And then on top of that, I think the suggestion that you're making is every 15 minutes, take five minutes, go get some water, relax, do something else, and then come back. So yeah, your suggestion is right on. So you know, I think you said something really important of you know having time to process and and a, there's a lot of research you know talking about that obviously you know the importance of a person processing the information and the planning the planning being just as important as the action itself. Have you found that simply by telling students that that they can effectively understand that, or is it best to set up some type of game or some type of learning environment where hopefully they discover that? Do you have any thoughts there? Yeah. Most people equate the number of golf balls hit with the amount of learning that takes place. And, and so if you're not explicit about it, they will feel like you're cheating them out of an opportunity to learn more because they're not hitting many golf balls. And, and even if you get them to do exactly what you want while you're with them, they'll revert right back to frequency equals learning. And, and that's just not true, right? In fact, in some regard, it's, you know, it's opposite within a range. So yeah, I mean, you have to be very explicit about it. Got it. Got it. Well, I think that's, that's a great call to action for folks. Mark, you also have a, a great book that people should check out. Still available on Amazon. Is that good for folks to pick up the PGA pros that are listening? You know, uh, I I will tell you that uh, I would be happy normally to, to plug my book, but um, I'm actually working on a revision of the book right now, and I'm really excited about it. I will announce the co-author, which is is going to be exciting, a new person that I'm working with who has a long history in, in coaching and playing golf as well. And I think that version is going to add a whole host of things. Some of the things we've talked about, the biology aspect and the growth mindset that I know you've talked about on your show before. And so in the interim, I'm happy to send a PDF of the old book if somebody would like it. But I think that the new book is going to be quite a bit better as well. Awesome. Well, that's, that is great news. I can't wait to check out what you have cooking there because I'm sure that'll be awesome. This has been fantastic. So much good info here for folks to pick through and hopefully they can take away uh, just a few. We've talked about a lot of really practical things uh, that they can implement into their teaching and coaching. So thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate the time and, and all your wisdom. You're very welcome. Absolutely a pleasure to talk to you, Cordy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to Dr. Mark Guadagnoli for taking the time to sit down with us and share about all this amazing info and research that he's done over the years. Make sure to reach out to him if you have any questions and check out that book that he's working on. All right, that's all for this show. I hope to join you on the next one. 